This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Adventure Structure. The Kaiser Victorious. The Fukushima Ghost Zone. And Elizabeth Clare Prophet. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The uh, smell of flanking bonuses and the sound of Dorito crumbling in the air tell us that we have entered once more the gaming hut that best of all huts. So what does a flanking bonus smell like, Ken? Uh, it depends on what system you're using, obviously, Robin. <laughs> Doi. So, so which system smells vaguely chocolatey? Vaguely chocolatey is obviously Tui. Tui is the chocolatey flanking bonus. Right. right. 3E is a more, it's more like a, a vinaigrette. Way to derail the introduction, Robin. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, here within the gaming hut, we find a number of uh, file folders and, and piles of papers, all of them desperately needing some kind of structure. And Robin, you're just the man to tell us what we were already doing. So what were we already doing? Um, what I want to look at when we talk about adventure structure is sort of build on our discussion a few episodes ago about uh, what is commonly... Uh, referred to as railroading uh, in adventure design. I, I think a better term for that would be a linear uh, structure uh, in which there are not very many choices and how to build your adventure so that they do have lots of choices and that the uh, players aren't just being led from one station to another in a plot that only has those stations, but rather gives them a meaningful choice or at least the feeling of meaningful choice throughout the course of the adventure. Now, that doesn't mean that a very linear adventure cannot seem non-linear to the uh, players who play it. And I think you've observed in the past, Ken, that uh, even, for example, a very straightforward investigative scenario is by nature becomes full of choices and red herrings and uh, surprise events just because the players introduce that level of chaos to what in the book or on the page is a linear adventure. Right. It's part of my general thing I always say, which is that a cliche is not recognizable from the inside. When you're inside it, the reason a cliche is a cliche is because it's a solid piece of story that everyone always uses. And when you're inside it, what you have is exactly that sense of uh, recognition and momentum that you want from a story that you're participating in. So to that end, a um uh, an adventure a linear adventure has the same feel um if you're in a mystery you want to feel like there is a solution if you're in a quest you want to feel like there's a a rod of seven parts or a part of a rod of seven parts somewhere in that dungeon so the notion that you are uh trapped in a linear uh space doesn't occur to you because you're engaged ideally and this is where good gming is different from bad gming you're engaged ideally in actually you know, moving farther into an adventure towards a goal that you recognize. And that is, covers a multitude of sins, as far as I'm concerned, uh, certainly compared to 
uh, wandering around the tavern and shaking down every stranger looking for uh, anything to do the rest of the night. And I think a key to this is in the scene transitions, you know, just as one of the reasons Citizen Kane is a brilliant film is that the transitions between all of those disparate, chronologically uh, separated scenes uh, unfolds, there's always really great transitions between them that pulls you through what is a very non-linear narrative and in the simplest form of classic role-playing narrative, which is you are in a dungeon knocking down doors and uh, confronting whoever's inside and getting their treasure or talking to them or whatever. The scene transitions, each room is a scene and the scene transitions are decided by the players in they're given a choice of rooms and they decide what room or what corridor or what passageway to go down. And so they are in charge of determining in what order an otherwise predetermined experience occurs. And so when you're moving out of that into a form of role-playing that tries to emulate a more uh, classic narrative form, whether that be an investigation or uh, political intrigue or uh, a mystery or a horror scenario or whatever, what have you, the key to seeing, first of all, whether your scenario is very linear is looking at the transitions between scenes. And that's why I think that as game designers, it's beneficial to look for a structure on the page that makes apparent to the reader what all of the separate scenes are. And as we've been doing more and more in Gumshoe, for example, making it clear how the scenes connect up to each other. And the process of doing that then inspires you to look for alternate ways for scenes to connect up. So that if you have uh, a choice point in an investigation where you can either go and talk to the newspaper reporter or head down to the wharf where the lurking thing was spotted, well, that immediately takes you out of the realm of the linear into the realm of the choice point. And so the players can have a discussion, hopefully not a infinitely convoluted, annoying discussion about which thing to do first, or they can split up and you can cut between them. And uh, ideally, they are aware that there, or at least they can decide that there are consequences for doing one thing over the other thing. And if you build those into your design and put them on the page, you're going to be thinking to do that because otherwise the danger is the scene transition that is sort of a forced transition that feels more like a cutscene in a video game where you are trying to move them from point A to point B. Well, what if they decide along the trail to go off and investigate here? And so in a adventure that isn't willing to deal with that possibility, it's like, well, you run into a zillion monsters until you go back onto the road. And so that brings up another problem with adventure design, which is that you cannot, within any reasonable page count, deal with every possible choice that the players could make, especially if the players start to reject the premise of your adventure and want to go off and do something entirely different. But you can at least uh, make sure that there are interesting enough choice points presented to them that they're less likely to reject the premise of your adventure. In, in a way, of course, that's the whole point of having of playing a role-playing game in the first place is because you want to be able to present scenarios that no reasonable writer can uh, 
can predict every outcome of. The whole goal, in, in my experience anyway, of, of playing a role-playing game is not, you know, the tactical goal of how many orcs can I kill, because obviously that's, you know, that, that's something we can do better now on, on video games, and we could probably do better before in, in skirmish miniatures. But the goal is to present a, a world in which there are so many possible choices that only an engaged other human brain can... Uh, can can work with the players to create sort of the emergent story within the overarching narrative that maybe the scenario designer has written, be that scenario designer, the GM, or uh, you or me. And I think that w- when you play towards that strength, towards the notion of allowing the GM to uh, make rational extrapolations from player action, you really hit the sweet spot. And you, therefore, you know, it's up to the GM, like I said, to make the, the, the quest for the rod or the hunt for the killer interesting in the first place. But then you have, uh, if, if you can present the GM with enough information, they will know how to deal with the fact that, uh, Sarah always wants to go and, uh, rescue, uh, the natives along the way, or that, uh, Steve is always interested in figuring out, uh, whether or not there is a, uh, conspiratorial undergrowth, uh, behind whatever's going on, or, or whatever it is. You know your player's general band of reactions, and you can, reading an, uh, an adventure, you can look at those choice points that are provided by the designer, and you can make some assessments, and then play the game with your group in a way that no other group necessarily plays it. And I know that we talk a lot in the design community about how Gosh, it's a shame that there aren't adventures that everybody has played, but I think one of the great things about role-playing is that no two plays of even the same adventure, even a very simple adventure, are going to be the same because they're going to have different players who bring different expectations to the table. Right, and as soon as you, uh, while you're designing a scenario, uh, whether you're doing it for publication or just for yourself at your home game, if you are looking at it as a series of scenes that you think that the players are likely to encounter... Uh, first of all, you have to stop and realize that they are not going to necessarily encounter everything that you prepare, and that if you have some of them sort of in mind as free-floating scenes that they can come into in a bunch of different ways, or that you can pull out of your back pocket when they go in a direction that you didn't expect. But the key, I think, to making the adventure compelling, to to being uh, improving your GMing, is to ask yourself exactly what are the choice points. Are they apparent enough to the players that they will be engaged by them? And as you suggest, do they hook into things that the players typically want to do? So that if you know that you, uh, you've thought up a sort of an interesting scene uh, where they head into the wilderness and they're supposed to get part one of the rod and discover that the other ones have been scattered across this wilderness area and they're going to have to, by different means, acquire each part of the rod. And of course that's, in itself, seems like a very linear conception because it says you're going to have to do this task, this six different versions of this task in order to get the reward at the end. But then you can ask yourself within that very simple structure that gives them a clear motivation, they're trying to assemble this thing, how do I make each stage of that present them with a choice? Now, one a very simple choice could just be that when they first discover the first part, they then have a choice of where they go next. They They don't just find out that there's part number two, over in the Vale of the Gnomes. In fact, they know that part number two is in Vale of the Gnomes, but part three is in the uh, 
Tomb of the Undead. So that immediately gives the players a choice that they can decide what do they want to do first. Do they feel ready for a fight against the undead, or do they feel like going and talking to gnomes first? And then once they get there, again, the question when you're building your scenes is to say, what are the choices that the players get to make? In a fight, there's all sorts of choices they get to make, whether, you know, do I use my fireball now, or, you know, do I risk running out of ammo with my laser gun? But you want to construct the lead into that fight in a way that has meaningful choices that matter in the story and then affect the consequence of the outcome of that fight and again move you toward other uh, obstacles which again present you with choices so as you read a published scenario uh, as you're highlighting things it might be useful to stop and and in the margins write what choices that scene presents to the players, and you might discover that it's not as strong a scene as it could be because it doesn't really present them with any choices. It just presents them with a, a chain of events. And so then the question is, how do I modify this into choices that my particular players who may be interested in rescuing the Aboriginal people along the way or always talking to the blacksmith, how those could possibly be roped into service to make this sort of inactive uh, GM directed scene into a more active player directed scene yeah i think the um the the, the notion of choice presented you know and ideally you present a choice at every at every turn you you begin with the big choice do we want to bother assembling the rod of seven parts do we care if nirlathotep eats the world and then once you've decided yeah we kind of do because it would be awesome to have a rod and or a world then you move into a, a, a strategic set of choices. You you know where three or four of the parts of the rod are, and you get to decide what direction you're going. Or you begin to uncover the entire scope of uh, Nirlathotep's plot without figuring out what he's doing in any given specific location. And then within those sub-adventures, obviously in a dungeon, there's different ways to go through it, or, or upstairs or downstairs or around or to the side or however you want to run it. And then within a uh, mythos investigation... Again, you have different tactics. We can talk to the scared locals. We can show up with dynamite and machine guns and see who uh, needs a killing. We can research in ancient tomes. We can go to the library. We can do this. We can do that. There's a million different paths toward the location of the mystery. And the goal that you as the GM have when you're designing the scenario, as you point out, is make the choices such that these choices are going to be relevant to your players and such that your players will notice that they exist. Uh, there's no point in you know, hiding the second way into the adventure behind a secret door that no one can find, for example. Right, and often when the flow of an evening breaks down, when you're, the players sort of bog down and can't decide what to do next and start to argue with each other over tactics, it's often because either all of the, the choices and their consequences are not apparent to them, or because all of the choices seem equally daunting. Mm -hmm. And you might then find it useful for when that happens to think of this as, not as just the group has bogged down or that it is interplayer conflict, but rather that the transition between scenes, the thing that makes narratives continue and have momentum, has broken down because they don't yet have enough information or haven't yet had it framed for them or knew and have forgotten because they've been talking about it so long what their choices really are and what the actual likely consequences of those choices are. And the sort of traditional, the GM 
doesn't ever intervene to move people toward one choice or another principle breaks down when they don't actually have enough information or clarity to make that choice. So I would argue that actually it is at that point incumbent on you to sort of break the fourth wall of uh, GM neutrality and actually say, you know, recap the situation and say, well, your choices seem to be this. And the upside of going over to the gnome kingdom is that you're kind of uh, friendly with the gnomes, but the downside is that you're afraid that there will be a conflict with them that you might want to kick further down the road because they probably don't want to give up that magical artifact. Whereas the upside of going over to find the part in the skeleton lair is that you don't have to worry about offending the skeletons, but the downside is that you are vulnerable to undead ever since this curse was laid on you in the last adventure, and maybe you want to do a detour to lift the curse, or maybe you just want to forge ahead, and maybe there will be something that will that you will be able to get in the skeleton lair to trade uh, with the uh, the gnomes. And so that then gets them thinking of possibilities and gets them thinking of different ways that they can move ahead into the story and make those transitions rather than allowing themselves to remain blocked by, you know, only seeing the downside of each choice or not really seeing how one choice might then dovetail into the next one. So uh, during gameplay, Robin, is it your experience that uh, you can just sort of come in as the voice of God and offer these uh, opportunities, or do you try and uh, in, have an NPC handy who can say, I'm just a simple halfling uh, torchbearer, but it looks to me like we got a choice here. Um, th that's a more natural way to do it, and when you can do that, you should. Uh, the challenge of that, though, is that often when players are feeling overwhelmed and don't know what to choice to make, they hunker down mm -hmm. somewhere where they're, uh, especially if they're feeling beleaguered, where they're not going to be spied on by enemies or whatever, and that there is no in-story justification for the simple halfling to come along. And also, I think that it is emotionally more difficult, I think, for players to accept the advice of the halfling with the funny voice, rather than to just have you sort of recapping what they've already discussed. And that, uh, so that often the, what seems like the better choice of keeping it all in character is an indirect way to do it. And it's actually, I think, often more economical just to, uh, in as neutral a way as possible, sort of present them the choices. So pulling back out from tactics, maybe to grand tactics or, or, or low strategy, when you're designing the adventure, do you think, is it important to put one choice point per act, or should it be more like three choice points per act? How many, and when you put in a choice point, should there be two obvious choices? Take the path to the left, take the path to the right. Gnomes, skeletons. Or should there be maybe three choices so that the GM can look at those three choices and say, well, none of those are exactly right, but you have a better chance of one of them being sort of what he knows the, the uh, players are going to want to go for. I think ideally anything that you break up as a separate scene, whether that's a separate location where you encounter something or a separate important character that you interact with, that ideally, and I don't know if you were to go through all of my adventures, that you would actually <laughs> find this because it's easier to say than to, than to implement. I, I think ideally you want at least two. And, you know, there's sort of a rule of thumb that uh, the human brain breaks down when presented with uh, 
more than seven choices. But I think in a role-playing situation that a role-playing group will break down when presented with, you know, even three is kind of pushing it because that, first of all, players may introduce other cool choices that you can react to and build on Mm -hmm. that are not in the two that you supplied, but that um, often if a, you know, solving a conflict within a group or making a decision within a group when there are three choices is even more difficult, which is, of course, the pizza topping dilemma, right? right? Yeah. um, the uh, more people you involve in a decision also increases the complexity of that decision. And uh, so that you you may now naturally there might be other situations. But, for example, to, to you know, stick with our example of the, the rod of seven parts, I think it would be more interesting to say, well, you know where two of the parts are at any given time. Whereas when, if you know where three of the parts are at any given time, first of all, it becomes much more difficult to cross-connect them in terms of, well, maybe you can get a treasure from the skeletons that you can trade with the gnomes, but, oh, how do I fit the dragon into all three of these things? It just becomes uh, kind of overwhelming. Whereas there are all sorts of sort of mini-choices where there's lots of options. For example, when you go to talk to the king, uh, there's a near infinite number of tactics that you could choose to adopt, and often in role-playing, just one of the players will step up and start reeling off dialogue and using whatever negotiating tactic that he chooses to make. You don't typically have a discussion about that beforehand, although often that might help the group. It might not have been a bad idea. It might not have been a bad <laughs> idea to decide how to approach the king. Yeah. So there are sort of lots of naturally occurring places where there's more than one choice. Um, but uh, in general, players will think of more choices uh, than uh, you anticipated anyway. So keeping it simple is never bad. But even so, if, you know, and there are gumshoe adventures where there are, you know, at the beginning you're presented with three or four different possible first people to go and talk to. Uh, the one in the uh, upcoming Esoteris uh, Enhanced Edition, for example, uh, gives you wide leeway at the beginning of the investigation to decide uh, which lead to, to start off with. And you will, you know, want to pick up most of those as you go along, just as you would in a real uh, you know, if you're the police come to a crime scene, they've got a whole bunch of different people to interview and they get to most of them. Uh, but that's not a, a really difficult, fraught choice. It's more sort of a preference of who seems more appealing to, to talk to first at, at the moment rather than something that has a really sharp, obvious set of consequences to it. So uh, taking it to the concrete, do you look at Masks of Nerlathotep as the sort of um, uh, ideal form of the multi-choice, multi-directional adventure that still avoids sprawl? Or do you think that it was a good first try, but we can do better? What's, what are your takes on sort of in terms of looking at examples and, and guiding your own uh, game design, either as a GM or as a designer by them? Is, is there something that you look at as the adventure you're always trying to get back to in terms of its level of, of choice and involvement? I, I'm not sure that I have a recent enough take on mass because I was not game designing at that time. And so I just sort of drank in its, you know, incredible uh, grandeur and, you know, and it's really, I think you probably have to break it down as it's actually five adventures and you kind of get to pick the order in which you have those adventures. So that sort of works in that macro way. I don't know what I would find if I went in and looked at the individual scenes and, and, sorted out how many different choice points there are uh, between the scenes in each location. Have you looked at that 
recently enough to, to have a sense of how the transitions work within each of those major locations in that famous adventure? I, I The last time I looked at masks was when I was doing the outline for Zelazhny Quartet, where I wanted I knew that I wanted the, the, the larger structure of Zelazhny to mirror that, where any scenario could lead to any of the other scenarios. And um, I did not look internally into, say, the, the Cairo adventure or the Shanghai adventure to see how many of those uh, in individual sub-adventures were multi-choice point adventures. I remember one or two of them being just sort of, you know, <laughs> blood-covered sandboxes, where it's like, this is a place where the mythos is pretty much totally in charge. Anything you do will get your arm torn off. Good luck! And uh, then the clues were scattered around it, like treasure in a dungeon. I mean, literally, it was it was a dungeon of Cthulhu, and you would go through it in any order, and you knew that there was going to be a horrific encounter that would provide you with the uh, intellectual treasure that you needed to complete the adventure. And, and so I don't know to what extent... I, I know that some of them uh, present the sort of tactical choices like we're talking about. Do we try and, you know, sidle up and, and cozy up to Penhue, or do we just break into his house? You know, what what are our specific choices? I don't know that there's that intermediate choice point in all of the scenarios. I'm sure that it must be in one or two of them, because, uh, you know, Lynn Willis was, was no slouch at, at designing adventures. And so I think that there was probably... Uh, it probably varies, and I think there's seven adventures, not not just the five, uh, when you add in the Australia and the New York. I, I would argue that we are actually kind of in the infancy of actively signposting what the choices are, because just typically adventures tend to be written sort of chapter style as blocks of text, and they can move between sort of uh, chunks of very sort of rulesy stuff to uh, a chunk where they're kind of narrating screenplay style, what they think is going to happen with your players to uh, discussions of different choices. And I think that in general, uh, we can do a lot more in structuring adventures to make those evident and underline and highlight them for the readers. Uh, and that often they are implicit and hard to spot and you have to read very carefully for them. And in a way that means they're sort of not quite there yet. Well, on that uh, optimistic note, I think we should probably leave the question of canon and perhaps even numbers for a later session at the Gaming Hut. Now it's time for another edition of Ask Ken and Robin. Uh, before we get to this week's Ask Ken and Robin question, though, I thought I would uh, just give a little bookkeeping note to those of you who are very graciously leaving your questions for us, uh, which you can do it as a comment on uh, any episode post at all at the uh, Ken and Robin site at www.kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. And we'll put that address on the on the webpage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, one thing that I would like to note is that in order to get your question picked, you want to tailor it to our podcasting needs. And so, for example, if your question is uh, 300 words long or has a lengthy preamble or uh, otherwise uh, is not a single snappy sentence, I'm going to condense it into a single snappy sentence uh, if I can find the question at all. And... Uh, so consequently, if you have an important caveat or something that you really, really want addressed, 
the way to get us to precisely answer your question is to make sure that it's a very brief one-sentence question that has the core element that you want us to address in it. Um, there are other questions that uh, seem kind of cool that I have not yet picked just because they do not uh, fit the overall balance of any given episode and will soon be picked. There are other ones that I think lay outside our uh, purview of expertise. So, for example, the question on uh, Scandinavian death metal has not yet been addressed because mm -hmm. uh, I have nothing relevant to say about Scandinavian death metal, and I sense, Ken, that neither do you. I have I have only the, the, the general understanding of Scandinavian death metal that a modern-day occultist and a conspiracy tracker must have, so it's a relatively shallow understanding. I, I wouldn't put myself up as an expert on it. Right, and uh, also comparing questions... Uh, uh, who'd win questions, or what's your favorite this, or what's the best that. Uh, I'm afraid I, I cannot rouse myself to be really excited about those. So you may want to carefully recraft your question so it's not framed in that way. And also, something anything that requires us to do a bunch of homework, we may dutifully intend to do, but never quite get to because we are crazy busy. So after that bit of guidance on how to designed the perfect Ken and Robin question. Here is a perfect Ken and Robin question, which I have condensed from a much longer uh, question. And that <laughs> is, uh, what does the, uh, this is from Crane Britain, and he asks, what does the alternate timeline where the Kaiser won World War I look like? Uh, Ken? I think there are um, there are two basic sort of ways that you approach that. And a lot of it, of course, depends on when the Kaiser wins World War I. If the Kaiser wins World War I in the first Battle of the Marne, because the um, uh, advancing German soldiers just managed to turn the corner and prevent uh, the British and the French from linking up, and then they just managed to stop uh, Foch before he can get the defenses in place on the Marne, and so they literally win World War I before the leaves fall, and it's a rerun of the Franco-Prussian War. That's a different victory than if the final spring offensive of Ludendorff with the shock troops and the tanks and the whole nine yards manages to break through and smash the Allies uh, into a piece of exhaustion before the Americans can get onto the field. And that's a different victory. And, and, and so you have sort of a, a wide variety of different possibilities. But if you are thinking sort of of the World War I that we have come to know and love it as, the, the great, horrific uh, death wound to Western culture, and if you say, all right, let's say that the Kaiser wins a piece of exhaustion in 1918 or 1919, or the Americans stay out and he just grinds the Allies down, or there is a... Um, uh, uh, he, he does better at Verdun, and so therefore the front moves in, and so the 1918 offensive has to move, is, is able to be a, a, um, a bigger surprise because it comes from, you know, one of two directions instead of it has to come right through the same alley in Belgium that everything was coming through. So you, you look at a, an alternate World War One that ends after a proper World War One with millions and millions and millions of people dead in the trenches. So the, the basic assumption is that, uh, because the Kaiser is a silly Ruritanian monarch in a pointy helmet with a ridiculous mustache, that uh, a victorious uh, Germany, Imperial Germany, will be a sort of cartoonish extension of the 19th century and that will be inevitably swept aside by the rising power of modernism and capitalism as uh, embodied in the United States and, to a lesser extent, Britain and Japan. And that assumption, of course, is an assumption made in a world in which uh, reactionary monarchy suffered catastrophic defeat in World War I. So we can't assume that that same 
uh, attitude will hold after reactionary monarchy has basically smashed what Europe sees as the home of democracy and the rights of man, France, and is going to turn around and, one assumes, throttle the life out of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia as it expands into the Lebensraum that it did indeed get after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1918, when it historically knocked uh, the, the Romanovs out. Now, there is the question as to whether or not say, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy can survive even a victorious World War I, given the <laughs> incredibly parlous state of governance in that country in 1913, much less by the end of the war. Similarly, it doesn't look super likely that, uh, say, the Ottoman Empire is going to survive as constituted, just because there's going to be immense amounts of uh, nationalist rebellions in the various Arab countries, given that, you know, uh, Ibn Saud isn't going anywhere. Uh, the Germans will wind up running the oil concessions, which will perhaps strengthen their hand, but there's no reason to say the Germans can't do what the Germans wanted to do anyway, which is set up local shakedoms that owe the Germans uh, instead of run everything through the Ottomans. Uh, Iraq and Syria, for example, uh, were both uh, you know, home to uh, very active pro-German movements, as was, uh, to a lesser extent, Egypt. There's no reason to say that the uh, Germans wouldn't have just found a local you know, uh, Sheikh and made him king of Iraq and king of Syria and king or king of Egypt, just the way that the British were doing after the after World War One. So, I think that you can look at either a sort of a continuity of west of of imperialism, not of sort of cartoonish bad government, but of the sort of late post Bismarck welfare state and the late post Bismarck mass media state, and see how that gets carried forward in a world in which democracy doesn't necessarily win the big one and we look at it maybe, uh, in, you know, Britain is not going to go into a dictatorship, nor is America, but I think both of them are going to move through the world with a lot less sort of uh, self-confidence and swagger, given that they've just seen their, you know, closest ideological allies blown uh, to pieces. There, there's going to be a, a very different tenor to, to, to the, the post-war era as a result of that. Now, the opposite take which I first encountered uh, in the work of a uh, the late uh, neo-Spenglerian blogger John Riley, is that if you look at the actual seeds of Weimar culture, you know, the anti-Semitism, the operatic grandeur, the ridiculous, surreal nature of politics, the uh, m involvement of, of mass and militarized movements, all of those have seeds before World War I. They all come out of uh, the, you know, the sort of the late Edwardian or early Kaiserine era, and that there's no reason that those movements that are, of course, created by the conditions of production, they're created by the nature of art, uh, the, the nature of other things, that those movements wouldn't have continued and that you wouldn't have a sort of uh, Weimar Imperium in Germany where the Kaiser is still running things in theory, but the real power is moving into the hands of a populist military movement, which obviously is not going to have a bunch of unemployable jokers in charge of it, but is still going to be a fairly nasty, uh, aggressive batch of guys uh, in the same uh, line of maybe a von Papen or uh, some of the other fellows that thought that they were using Hitler. And in a world in which the Kaiser won, you know, maybe they are using Hitler. Maybe he never gets anywhere better than, you know, Bavaria regional chairman of the military party. So what is the brightest future that you can envision out of a Kaiserine victory? I, I think the brightest future out of a Kaiserine victory is, uh, well, first of all, the, the aforementioned throttling of Bolshevism in its cradle, which is, of course, a, uh, a glorious outcome because it saves directly uh, something like 
20 or 25 million lives and indirectly probably closer to 100 million. Uh, so you, you, if, you know, if the Kaiser is uh, smart enough or his, uh, Ludendorff is smart enough to send the, sh- the stormtroopers in to, um, uh, uh, shut down their former clients, uh, Lenin and uh, Trotsky and Stalin, and replace them with uh, either a biddable social democratic uh, government along the lines of uh, the Mensheviks, or with a you know a spare Romanov that someone found lying around the place. Uh, then I think that that's a considerably better outcome. The question also, you know, of whether or not. German or British rule over colonial Africa would have been superior is, I think, somewhat open as long as you exclude the sort of um, uh, uh, the, the sort of outliers. You know, the, the British rule in Uganda was relatively, uh, or Kenya rather, was relatively um, forward-looking, and the German rule in Namibia was, you know, grotesque and genocidal. But there are certainly plenty of examples of, of bad British rule or decent uh, German rule. Uh, and so I'm not sure that you, you see that as, as much of a, a difference one way or the other. Obviously, in the wake of a German victory, Ireland becomes uh, whole and independent. Uh, Ulster doesn't get kept by the British, I don't imagine, uh, because the uh, humiliation of the British is going to be part of that. And Ulster, <laughs> Ulster is pretty much just the low-hanging thing that the British, if they're you know, gun to their head, probably don't want to run anyway. India is an, is an interesting question. I think that you probably see, you know, some sort of responsible government for India earlier. It, it may wind up being tied by trade treaties or something to German industrial concerns. But I think that simply removing it from the British grasp might be a, a good enough victory. So in a lot of ways, this Kaiser modern future is sort of, you know, is sort of decent uh, from from a lot of uh, sort of people's colonial perspective. Obviously, the the people in um, uh, the Balkans or wherever that are going to be run for the benefit of Germany, they're not going to be particularly well off. But given that you're only uh, 20 years away from them being run as puppet states of the Soviet Union, I think it's hard to argue that they're worse off. I think that the real question is, what is the effect on politics in the West. And what you don't want to have is what actually had happened in the victorious uh, allies of Italy and Japan, you know, disgruntled losers taking over and uh, trying to turn politics into, you know, fascism or proto-fascism. France came very close, even in our history, as the winner of the war to having a number of right-wing Action Francaise or La Cagoule uh, or the uh, Cross of Fire uh, faction seize power. Britain, of course, famously had the general strike in 1926 and then a a period, a long period of conservative rule that created the uh, sort of underlying political uh, pressures that that blew out in uh, their their first uh, socialist government after the war. And in in a world where America does not get into World War One, uh, and there is no World War Two, uh, it presumably becomes culturally very different in that it is. Uh, continues to embrace the virtues of isolationism, of staying out of world affairs, and presumably does not become a superpower. Well, America, even by 1913, was a superpower, you know, in all but name, in that we had, just by accident, I think the fourth or fifth largest navy in the world, and we weren't even trying to build a navy that much. We obviously had a huge amount of throw weight in industrial and economic matters. The fact is that they couldn't have fought World War I without American toluene. So... To an extent, we are a superpower the instant we decide we want to be. And the question there is, 
in the wake of a victorious Germany, does a losing Japan feel like it wants to try conclusions with us or with Germany in the Pacific? And maybe we and the Germans fight as allies against the Japanese in the 1940s. So uh, the United States does not, however, feel like it has to become the world's imperial policeman. To a large extent, that's left to the Germans. And as long as the Germans are smart enough to uh, leave something on the table for Standard Oil and uh, U.S. Steel, I don't think that there's going to be any real problem uh, in terms of America worrying that there's some sort of Kaiserine threat. Now, that's different if... Wilson has gotten us into the war and we still lose, then the notion that the AEF has been sent home from Europe in bungling disgrace has a real impact on American geopolitics, and you may get something of a uh, anti-Kaiserine Cold War mentality in the United States, where what we have to do is really buckle down and start grabbing up you know, our sphere of influence in Africa, in Liberia or Abyssinia, or wherever we can uh, start uh, competing with the Kaiser. Maybe we move more aggressively into China and Southeast Asia in an attempt to, you know, uh, claim our global, uh, our, our place in the sun, as it were. So there's still a Cold War. It's just a Cold War with the Kaiser. Yeah. And again, that's predicated on us having been in the war in the first place. If the reason that uh, the European allies lose is because we didn't get in, which is, I think, probably the most likely uh, reason that the European allies uh, lose just on the, you know, on, on the simplicity principle, if nothing else. I, I think that if we don't get in, then like you say, that we continue to be sort of the shining city on the hill and uh, look at foreigners as at uh, best comical and at worst annoying. Do you want to swap our uh, timeline for this one? I, if I got to, you know, sort of pick and choose, maybe do a little design work, I think that certainly a world without Soviet communism is a superior world to a world with Soviet communism. And when you add the bonus of no Holocaust and no Hitler, I think it's it's a very tough call to make. Uh, again, I like all the people who believe that uh, Imperial uh, Germany would be sort of a cartoon am a product of the, of the world that was produced by the war. And I'm, I'm sure that there would be intellectual sort of trends that didn't happen that I would miss. I mean, I, I would look around maybe at a world that didn't have surrealism or a world that, that didn't have the demotic voice in literature. And I would say, I kind of miss that. I, I enjoy that. Or maybe American science fiction authors aren't uh, producing the same sort of uh, optimistic, endless frontier uh, that, that gave us Star Trek and Robert Heinlein, and, and I would miss that. But I think that that's, you know, a fairly thin uh, read to set against perhaps 200 million lives saved the other way. Uh, well, on that note, as we all make our travel plans for this alternate uh, Kaiserian reality, it's time to uh, close up our Ask Ken and Robin uh, environments. Pinging of the GPS, and the, in this case, the ticking of the Geiger counter, tell us that we are entering the strange but well-mapped confines of the cartography hut. And Robin, you have a, I believe, a postmodern William Gibson sort of experiment to try here in the cartography hut. So why don't you start us off? So uh, Google Maps, of course, have been an incredible resource for the world in general and for role-playing as well, because now when you're playing any role-playing game set in the real world, and you, for example, have the characters uh, moving from Texas into New Mexico in their uh, crazy mutant circus, you can just uh, dial up uh, your uh, Google Maps and see where they're headed next and find all sorts of cool connections. But uh, one of the eeriest applications of the 
whole Google mapping phenomenon where they send automated uh, trucks. Well, I guess they're not automated per se, but they send uh, cars through areas to get street view maps of everything that has a street that they can get to. Uh, they've recently gone into the uh, Fukushima ghost zone, which is the exclusion zone where uh, after the uh, tsunami and nuclear accident is now basically uh, considered uninhabitable. There's still people going in doing abatement and uh, uh, other sort of environmental work, but nobody lives there anymore. And it is still uh, devastated in a way that other areas that were hit by the tsunami uh, no longer uh, look like, because of course you can rebuild the areas that are not irredeemably irradiated. But this is basically going to be a time capsule of the disaster for uh, decades, if not generations, just the way that uh, Chernobyl is. And so when you look at the fruits of this effort, when you look at the pictures of the Fukushima ghost zone, uh, some of the images look uh, like uh, just wreckage from a very recent disaster, but others of them, uh, the ones that I find most poignant and most eerie and perhaps uh, most uh, inspirational for a uh, dark genre story of some kind are the areas where the uh, streets have are still relatively intact, but have been abandoned, of course. And there are cars in the middle of the roadway, and there's little bits and pieces of uh, evidence of the disaster, or there'll just be a shot of a otherwise ordinary roadway with a... Uh, gigantic ocean vessel sitting uh, just off the side on the shoulder of the road. And so this sort of brings up a, uh, it creates a visual record of the sort of vanishing style of the end of the world narrative or apocalypse, the uh, sort of your Omega Man story or your uh, story where everybody is suddenly reduced to powder and there's only a few survivors uh, left. So I thought that we would uh, think of this imagery and try to find uh, ways to riff off it in various genres to come up with interesting adventure hooks or ideas for uh, fiction. So uh, you can just take these pictures off the rack and use them in your game as photos of a post-apocalyptic setting where the apoc apocalypse happens to our modern world. Or uh, what else might you do with this, Ken? I think that um, the uh, the thing that you might want to do with it is use it as inspiration for a uh, sort of a planet-going space game. I mean, that's what I'm running right now. So I'm thinking of uh, sort of n new landscapes and new vistas in those terms. Uh, you, you have a, a world like this, and you can sort of see, you know, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock beaming down to a, a planet that they just gotten a message from a couple of weeks ago, and they show up, and there's a giant ocean liner beached on the on on the street, and cars everywhere, but no people. And you sort of set it not so much as horror, although the asp the the the, the underlying t tone of it is horror, but as as a mystery, as what happened. And in a world where the you know you're looking at the apocalypse because you know that there was a tsunami combined with a nuclear meltdown, you you know what happened to it. But in a world where you don't know that that happened. What do those pictures look like? What do they look like might have happened to the to the people who lived there? Did they evacuate? Were they, as you say, reduced to powder? Did, were they teleported away by some sort of uh, aliens? Why did that ocean liner show up in the middle of the street? I mean, you, you look at the, those things, and if you divorce the part of your mind that knows the answer, 
and put it into the part of your mind that is, you know, asking questions and building patterns, I think you can start deriving narrative from those. Um, You mentioned horror, and uh, this is uh, obviously a fertile ground uh, for the horrific because it is a real-life horrific event, and one of the ways that we process real-life horror is to uh, genre it up to make it a a more fantastical horror uh, experience that sort of... uh, draws imagery from the real-life horror. And so, you know, the classic example of that is uh, the Godzilla narrative, which is all about finding and and then making that image increasingly harmless over time of every way of uh, processing uh, the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, the first original Japanese version of that is actually quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then over time, uh, Godzilla is tamed and becomes a friend to children everywhere. Um, but if you want to go back to the uh, original phase of uh, horror, you could then create a reason why the characters have to go into uh, this exclusion zone to uh get something or to track something down and either they're aware already that there's something monstrous there while they're worried about their hazmat suits being uh, punctured and worried about staying in the zone too long. Uh, and, uh, so you could have anything from your kind of a, a monster hunt to, uh, what happens when the, uh, the Google car goes by and there's an image, which of course they have to classify, but they show to you as the investigators where there is a strange amorphous, shape in the ruins. What is this thing? Is it an alien? Is it some kind of uh, being that can only come back into the world when there are no people around? And so you can have your sort of Esoterror or Delta Green style adventure where uh, you are given the secret uh, image from the Google map and told to go in and find out what it might be. Yeah, the um, certainly the, the use of, of uh, this kind of situation for horror. I mean, they're beginning to make now horror movies set at Chernobyl and uh, sort of science fictionize that uh, that location in other ways. Uh, so I think that you can you can begin to sort of see that pattern happening. And I'm sure that we uh, we we probably don't know enough about Japanese horror uh, to know that it's already happened. Because I'm sure that J horror being as uh, fertile as uh, an area as it is, that someone has already done a Fukushima horror story in some medium or other, and we and it just hasn't drifted to America yet. I, I think that if you look at something like this as just the possibility of, you know, Delta Green send you in to find out what that image was on the map, that it almost runs the risk of just turning it into another setting. I think that if you really want to draw that those specific images or that specific location into the story, that it needs to somehow be tied into the uh the resolution as well so the 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 thing that happened is that uh there was a you know an om shinriki kyo uh death cult that uh, triggered a a mythos happening and that's what attracted the tsunami to fukushima or the 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 tsunami spread some kind of um you know new undersea life that became mutated by the radiation and so you've got sort of um baby gitaras or deep ones or something uh huckling around or you can do like the, the, I forget what it was called, the Chernobyl Diaries, I think, was the name of the movie. But you, you can have the sort of um, uh, Hills Have Eyes chuds uh, out there uh, that were uh, created by survivors of the, of, the, of the blast and of the tsunami who refused to be evacuated and have now uh, degenerated in proper Victorian fashion into goblins and trolls. 
I, I think you can also, speaking of goblins and trolls, you can look at this as inspiration for a fantasy setting. And you can, because obviously a world of full of, of dark lords and evil magi is going to have things exactly like this, where there was some sort of spell that went off and no one maybe even knows who cast it, but all of a sudden this, you know, little peaceful seaside town full of um, people and mermen working together has turned into this blighted death zone, and now you have to go in, and it becomes sort of a an urban dungeon in that way. You could also uh, use this as sort of the beginning of a Colorado space uh, sort of thing that goes from a localized apocalypse to a worldwide apocalypse. So what if you have your uh, explicable nuclear accident and your exclusion zone, and then the mappers who are following this notice that the map is becoming increasingly at the fringes occupied by an even greater exclusion zone. And so that as uh, it starts to grow and that the uh, ordinary uh, car dealership that was well outside the exclusion zone and wasn't hit by the tsunami, but sort of borders it. Well, as this effect goes outwards, one day you uh, get there and it is suddenly ruined as well. And that suddenly somehow the abstract concept of ruination is spreading through the world. And what can you possibly do to arrest that, to turn it back, or maybe the whole world uh, that you're in the middle of a slow mo motion apocalypse and you're, uh, you know, the, the player characters or the protagonists of your story are, you know, stuck in the town for whatever reason that is uh, about to be engulfed. And uh, what do you do? Do you do you flee? Do you somehow try and stand your ground and understand what's going on? And so that could give you something that is uh, uh, eerier than uh, your basic bunch of cannibal mutants. Another possibility is to play with the notion of the photograph as just one moment in time, right? They go into the area where the Google car has mapped this sort of devastation, and when they get there, everything is normal. Everyone's like going to town and eating lunch out of their bento box and, you know, watching weird cartoons and doing all the normal Japanese things. And suddenly the question is, did the Google car drive through a parallel Japan? Did a piece of parallel Japan drop into our world? What is, maybe it was the, it's the car that's driving this and it, it, and Google brought these memories into our minds because of course everyone in the world looked at Google during that uh, tsunami to find out what was going on. Uh, and, and so the, the question of what is reality and what is not reality or what is, uh, you know, continuous time and what is dis, uh, discrete time, what is uh, stochastic time can be maybe the theme. And it's not so much that specific disaster as the notion that there are Google cars that drive through and take pictures, but those pictures only represent maybe just what's visible through their aperture. And maybe it's not what's actually going on in the world. Maybe there's some other thing. And maybe the second time they come back, yep, it's back like Google said and Looks like that was just an anomaly, you know, turn in your badge and gun and go take a well-earned vacation somewhere. And now you have to think, what were my superiors in on this? Is there some sort of larger uh, semiotic uh, mystery to solve? I, I think that something like that, you can do that with almost any sort of Google thing. You know, there, there's a Google car that snaps a Nazi rally as it's driving through uh, Dresden, or worse yet, as it's driving through Manchester. And then you go back and it's like, nope, nope, this is just normal. I don't know what's going on. Uh, and there is another twist in that if you were living in the exclusion zone and you evacuate it and you check Google Maps and there's the Google car and it shows you still leaving your normal life there mm -hmm. uh, when you know you weren't there. Do you risk going back in to confront yourself? Do you want to, uh, do you think it's possible to become the happy you whose life was destroyed? Uh, is uh, when you run into yourself there, uh, is it you? Is it an alien being? Is it uh, 
a uh, projection of your own desires. So I think this is yet another example of something coming up in the news that uh, has this sort of so many really vivid hooks to it that it's hard not to uh, keep riffing on it. And uh, after you get past the ideas that write themselves, there are even more interesting ideas uh, lying there waiting for the Google car to come and photograph them. circles on the wall and the tang of incense in the air tells us that once again we are dealing with the consulting occultist and uh, this week we're going to talk about a comparatively recent figure uh, and that would be Elizabeth Clare Prophet who uh, Ken you've mentioned several times before on the podcast in terms of her uh, the political valence of her occultism but maybe we can step back a bit and uh, get the uh, basic 101 on the uh, life and uh, occult beliefs of Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Okay, uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet began as the sort of child bride, I think she was 22 when she married him, of a guy named Mark Prophet, who was the uh, founder of something called the Summit Lighthouse, which was one of the cults or religious movements, depending on how you want to define it. I think that uh, experts in new religions have sort of come down on both sides of this question. Now, was he born as Mark Prophet, or did he just come by his metonym naturally? You know, I don't know, but I can. I am one click away. I, it looks like he was actually named Prophet, which sounds very much like a um, uh, <laughs> like a like a DC supervillain type yes. thing. You're named Anton Arcane. I suggest a career in <laughs> I don't know evil wizardry. Yes. So anyway, the the, the fellow uh, Mark Prophet uh, got involved in or involved himself in the uh, tail end, or I guess it wasn't the tail end because he started it over again, of the I Am movement, which if you'll recall from our old buddy William Dudley Pelly, was the movement of seeking out uh, white ascended masters to guide you to a theosophical American paradise. Uh, the white ascended master in the I Am case was our good old friend, uh, the Comte de Saint-Germain. And the Saint-Germain uh, church or Saint-Germain movement, as it is ver variously called, spawned about a million different subsets. And in, in the course of talking about this, obviously there's going to be a lot of, uh, of fissioning and, uh, and, and, uh, and splintering and everything to keep track of. And I think it's important to say this is not just a thing that occultists do. This is a thing that all American religions tend to do. Uh, the, the, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, we all knew about the, the towns that had one stoplight and three Baptist churches because, you know, the, the congregations all got mad at each other. And so they, you know, couldn't, uh, they couldn't see their way clear to just having the one church for the 200 people. And, and similarly, this sort of thing happens, you know, in other branches of American religion and, of course, in American new religions and American cult movements. And so, the Summit Lighthouse is one of, I, I think, five major and maybe a, a, a two or three score minor St. Germain cults that came out after uh, William Dudley Pelley was, you know, tossed in prison for being a Nazi and people sort of wanted to 
get the stink of that off their magical Saint Germain cult. So maybe we should back up just a bit more and, and uh, fill in what a Saint Germain cult is in this context. In this context, it's a cult that derives from the vision that Guy Ballard had on Mount Shasta that uh, the Comte de Saint Germain appeared to him and sort of gave him the you know the 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 one the one hundred one the four one one about America's occult nature and destiny, and specifically what you as a, a good cultist would have to do to bring that uh, destiny about. And this happens when Guy Ballard had his vision in nineteen thirty, I think it was early thirties or late twenties on uh, the 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 slopes of Mount Shasta, and our buddy William Dudley Pelly was a big part of Ballard's movement early on, and that's where he dr- derived a lot of his. Um, uh, attention from. So we've got a, a branching line that goes a whole bunch of different places, but one of those lines goes goes to Mark Prophet's Summit Lighthouse. From Ballard to Pelly to Prophet. Okay. Right. And, and, and again, I don't think that there's a specific connection between Pelly and Prophet. I think that the Saint Germain movement, after Pelly is, as I say, tossed in jail for being a Nazi, splinters. One of those splinters eventually attracts Mark Prophet. He founds the Summit Lighthouse in 1958, and he marries Elizabeth Prophet, uh, then Elizabeth Wolf, in 1963, and they go on to found the Church Universal and Triumphant, which is a name that they took from a combination of theosophical and, I think, apocalyptic uh, uh, evangelical I don't want to say legend, but let's say uh, tradition. It was also from the book of not at all sinister church names. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Alice Bailey, who was one of the great American theosophists and got into a big scream and fight with the British theosophists uh, over who was better friends with the invisible secret masters. Um, she prophesied that there would be a church universal that would rise in the latter part of the 20th century and lead America to glorious St. Germany goodness. And, so to sort of feed into that prophecy, uh, Mark and Elizabeth Prophet named their church the Church Universal and Triumphant. And, and again, that this this uh, language comes out of a lot of other pre-existing American, uh, either you know fringe evangelical or budding new religion slash cult uh, beliefs that all sort of were spinning around uh, after uh, the fundamentalist movement sort of you know upset the apple cart of American theology in in the early 1900s. So how unique to the prophets is this fusion of the evangelical and the theosophical? I don't think that it's particularly unique to them because the evangelical flavor is the flavor of American religious excitement. And it was the flavor, for example, of the Southern Baptists uh, when they were new. And it was the flavor of the Methodists when they were new in America. It just seems to be the way that Americans uh, respond to a religious uh, uh, intuition, and to an extent, it's how British people respond as well, given that there are plenty of weird British uh, Christian-slash-occult movements of various sorts, and obviously that, you know, John Wesley sort of uh, creates the pattern for it when he invents Methodism back in the early 18th. So there's the evangelical template, and it's a really big template and easy to plug into, and there's the theosophical template, which is uh, somewhat smaller and more exotic, but also very easy to plug into. And they plug these things together, and what happens? And what happens is that they have themselves a church. And the church is, again, it's sort of a weird combination. Jesus becomes like the best ascended master of all. And so uh, St. Germain is still cool, and all the other uh, ascended masters, a lot of whom name begin with L for reasons I can't begin to guess, um, they they show up and they dictate things. And then the Church Universal Triumphant sort of puts a Christian face toward 
uh, recruitment, and then I think as you get further into it, you're told about the Ascended Masters, but then there's also, you know, a very strong sort of quasi-theosophical uh, vibe to it that's not particularly hidden, but it's I, I think it's not where the, you know, it, I, I think there's maybe an evolutionary uh, angle to it that uh, as you are trying to recruit from uh, devout but perhaps uh, unsatisfied Americans, you're going to wind up recruiting people to Jesus, not to, you know, this Comte de Saint-Germain, and that's just how, you know, the math works. But she, uh, the, 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 the Church Universal Triumphant, had missionaries and would go overseas and would help the poor, and they would hang out with Mother Teresa and do all kinds of other things, and some of those things were, you know, uh, at least somewhat legitimate uh, missionary movements or uh, charitable movements, and some of them, of course, were some sort of scam. And as the church sort of continued to uh, to operate, it began to get more and more concerned that the prophecies of of Saint Germain for a uh, for a, a white Protestant America that looked like 1950 or 1930 were not coming true, and so things were getting iffier and stranger. And at one point, the Church Universal Triumphant, and this is what sort of got it in trouble uh, with the government, was that it began preaching the. It, the uncoming apocalypse, that there was going to be a nuclear war, God was going to visit a nuclear war on America because we'd been bad, and so everyone needed to start, A, doing theosophical rituals to prevent a nuclear war, and B, hiding out in the mountains and stockpiling guns. And obviously, the you know government doesn't have one particular thing to say about theosophical rituals to prevent nuclear war, but uh, you start hiding out in the mountains and stockpiling guns, and people will start taking a, a gander at you. And I should emphasize that the guns were legal guns. It was not like they were stockpiling, you know, uh, you know, uh, 50 caliber Brownings. They were just buying them under assumed names so that the church wouldn't get a reputation as the kind of place that hides in the mountains and stockpiles guns. And as you can perhaps guess, that plan worked about as well as you'd think it would. And so specifically, how did that go down? Well, it, it went down that they got um, uh, raided by the ATF, and uh, I believe that uh, Mark Prophet uh, maybe uh, had to go to jail for a bit. I think Elizabeth Prophet may have had to go to jail for a bit, and so there was a uh, there was sort of a, um, a an ongoing legal controversy that again drove people who just wanted to worship exciting purple Jesus out of the church, and that then sets in because of course when you have a, a, an organization like this, a lot of times you wind up with a you know, the, the goal is to have you and all your friends get to drive around in awesome cars and, and swan around like kings, not necessarily to uh, run a self-sustaining uh, church movement. And so the drop-off in American membership meant fewer, uh, less dues. That meant they had to sell the awesome ranch in the mountains. Uh, they get no credit for having averted the nuclear war, which I think is a little unfair, frankly. <laughs> um, and uh, they, you know, they published their, their various books in the way that uh, a a good-thinking theosophical movement does. Some of them are, you know, interesting from a theological standpoint. Others are more interesting from a sort of uh, magical or, or conspiratorial standpoint. They're, they did a very accessible translation of the Book of Enoch, which is the one that I own, actually. So that's, uh, you know, something to be said for them. And, uh, they, I mean, they didn't do the translation. They found a public domain translation and prettied it up and wrote a bunch of nonsense, which is exactly how you watch Books of Enoch, as far as I'm concerned. Um, then they, uh, they wound up having uh, th th this sort of reputation attached to them, and uh, between that and Elizabeth Clare Prophet's failing health, they sort of, I don't want to say they faded away, but the, it, it seems like they're pretty much about due for another uh, splintering now that uh, Elizabeth Prophet is 
I, I think she passed away in like 2009 or something like that. She she died fairly recently, and obviously it, it is at this point that we now have to determine if she left a, a charismatic uh, uh, follower or if the, the movement will sort of fall apart in arguments over real estate as uh, these new religions tend to. Now, uh, what do we take away as being most interesting about her and her movement? Is it just the fact that this is a pretty late as into essentially the present day big theosophical slash evangelical slash new age movement? Is it the fact that she uh, combines all of these uh, different elements and sort of seems outwardly new agey, but uh, there's a sort of a more old school occultism at its core? I think the, I think the, the thing that's interesting about them and because they are so modern, as you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of aspects to them that, that can be made interesting. I mean, Part of it's just I I like seeing good old Saint Germain get worshipped. I mean the, the 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 I am temple the the sort of the the ground zero of Guy Ballard's Saint Germain worship still you know cranking along in downtown Chicago. So I like walking past that uh, when I see that, um, and I, I I sort of enjoy seeing you know Theosophy continue to sort of you know bounce around pinball style. That's one of the things as I mentioned before. I enjoyed uh, their edition of the Book of Enoch. It was very handy to me, and so I enjoy that sort of um, re-Victorianization, I guess, of American occultism that they have been contributing to. I just enjoy, you know, I, I, I enjoy theosophy just aesthetically, uh, and the, the Church Universal and Triumphant, you know, practically was certainly, it, it, regardless of what it might have wished in its heart, it, it didn't go around, you know, um, uh, you know, beating up black people or, or saying awful things. It just sort of, you know, uh, like your 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 sort of dotty great aunt's racism, not your your mean uncle's racism, I guess is what they have, and so they have um, uh, uh, all manner of connections to 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 the uh, to the theosophists, which is one fun thing. And then they also, because they were so present in the modern era, they had things like uh, magical invocations to destroy rock music uh, that they you know would put out, and so you would be able to to chant them and and send evil rock music away. And bring back the proper America that Guy Ballard wanted. So, so basically, they accidentally summoned Auto Tune. They may have. I mean, we 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 don't know yet if they have called up that which they could not put down. Because uh, you know, pop music is still chugging along fine, but they they may have stuck something in the side of rock and roll. Yes, they they may have de- dealt it a dollarous blow that um uh, that it continues to expire from. Although, uh, again, there's a uh, <laughs> there's there, there there's a certain irony to to the way that their their magic happened. I mean, when they when they sort of, um, uh, one imagines when they were hoping keep America safe from nuclear war, they or, or you know they were not sort of expecting the whole thing to fizzle out in in that undramatic fashion. And likewise, uh, when they prayed rock away, I'm pretty sure they didn't want it to be replaced by hip hop. So uh, one of the things we uh, often want to look at here, I often want to look at, is the uh, charlatan believer spectrum. And uh, I think that uh, for all of the other ways that it makes one nervous. Uh, a stockpile of weapons uh, kind of weighs you down on the uh, self-believer syndrome that you are uh, not likely, if you're just a scam artist, to uh, spend all of your carefully gathered tithe money on a bunch of guns to uh, stick down in the uh, basement and wait for everything to come undone. Yeah, I think that the um, if you if you look at Elizabeth Clare Prophet, I mean, obviously 
she was, you know, she did not stint herself. She was not like the new pope, you know, dining off of a hot plate and, and walking to work or taking public transportation. But, you know, again, we all know plenty of leaders of perfectly recognized uh, religions who who eat out pretty nicely on the uh, on on Jesus's nickel. And so, you know, that is not an indication of charlatanism. That's just an indication of sort of, you know, poor moral character. I think that given her relatively young age when she met Mark Prophet and got involved in in uh, Saint Germain worship and and this sort of um, uh, I don't want to say Christianity, but this sort of Christian mysticism, I, I think that there's no reason to assume that she's a, a charlatan per se. She's not claiming um, any magical powers that she's not willing to live by. She's not um, uh, uh, you know going around and accepting you know money necessarily to um, uh, try and, and and faith heal people or whatever. She's just sort of doing her, her magic and, and trying to keep America from getting nuked, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. So if, if hers is the movement that basically follows the American social changes from the uh, post-war era into all of the shifts of the counterculture and uh, is sort of a posed as a reaction to that and is trying to pull uh, culture back into a previous era by magical means, what would you envision as the expression of theosophy that we might find next going ahead into the information age. I think I think it will be interesting to see what sort of digital theosophy does because one of the things that, you know, having for example completely searchable uh Blavatsky online I think does is it lets people sort of start coloring their own new age movements by things they can find. I mean if, if you look at modern day uh um sort of ascended master cults, a lot of them are, are, you know, clip and save from other web pages, and these can be UFO web pages, or these can be black helicopter web pages, or these can be uh, ancient astronaut web pages, or whatever it is. And so you're beginning to see that same sort of syncretic paragraph from everywhere that, that animated Blavatsky become sort of the vocabulary or even the language Except of... Except today it's assembled on a Pinterest board. Right, exactly. You assemble it on a Pinterest or a, or a blog or whatever. So I think that the, the, the sort of the digital theosophy is going to have to wait for a movement or a social group that is capable of utilizing social media to attract attention to it. Uh, and again, uh, attract serious attention in, in terms of, you know, millions of followers. Anyone can put up a, a cult website and get, you know, 600 guys to buy their pamphlet or whatever. But I think something that's going to really have a an Elizabeth Prophet or an Alice Bailey type effect is going to have to be something that really leverages social media. And I think that you're going to have to maybe wait and look for another time of either real social turmoil, like the 30s when Guy Ballard was doing it, or to a lesser extent, like the 18, you know, 80s and 1870s when uh, Blavatsky was doing it. Or you're going to also maybe want to look for an era when everyone else thinks all the problems are sort of solved and there's an ongoing discontent. In a way, the Church Universal and Triumphant is part of the counterculture. It's certainly counter to mainstream, mainline Protestantism. It's counter to uh, the received wisdom of America in 1958 and 1963 when it was founded variously as the Summit Lighthouse and the, and the CUT. It's just not the counterculture in terms of not taking a bath that we understand that it's, term. It's a counter-counterculture. Yeah, or, or it's a it's a counterculture that becomes a counter-counterculture as uh, the, the the sort of the, the momentum culturally swings away towards hippies and away from uh, theosophists. But, you know, as anyone who's read a cultural history that runs longer than 100 years knows, that pendulum swings back. And at some point, 
you know, it used to be that student movements were always right-wing, and maybe that'll start happening again. Well, uh, that uh, sounds like the classic instance of another topic coming up as we close <laughs> uh, one topic. So I guess this will be uh, uh, the end of our look at Elizabeth Clare Prophet and the end of our podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Test us with your Geiger counters at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>